0: Book two, part one of the Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia. This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia by Philip Sidney. Book two, Part One. In these pastoral times, a great number of days were sent to follow their flying predecessors, while the cup of poison which was deeply tasted of the noble company had left no sinew of theirs without mortally searching into it yet never manifesting his venomous work till once that the night parting away angry that she could distil no more sleep into the eyes of lovers had no sooner given place to the breaking out of the morning light and the sun bestowed his beams upon the tops of the mountains but that the woeful gynecia to whom rest was no ease had left her loathed lodging and gotten herself into the solitary places those deserts were full of going up and down with such unquiet motions as a grieved and hopeless mind is wont to bring forth there appeared unto the eyes of her judgment the evils she was like to run into with ugly infamy waiting upon them she felt the terrors of her own conscience she was guilty of a long exercised virtue which made this vice the fuller of deformity the uttermost of the good she could aspire unto was a mortal wound to her vexed spirits and lastly no small part of her evils was that she was wise to see her evils insomuch that having a great while thrown her countenance ghastly about her as if she had called all the powers of the world to be witness of her wretched estate at length casting up her watery eyes to heaven o sun said she whose unspotted light directs the steps of mortal mankind art thou not ashamed to impart the clearness of thy presence to such a dust creeping worm as i am o you heavens which continually keep the course allotted unto you can none of your influences prevail so much upon the miserable gynecia as to make her preserve a course so long embraced by her o deserts deserts how fit a guest am i for you since my heart can people you with wild ravenous beasts which in you are wanting o virtue where dost thou hide thyself what hideous thing is this which doth eclipse thee or is it true that thou wert never but a vain name and no essential thing which hast thus left thy professed servant when she had now need of thy lovely presence o imperfect proportion of reason which can too much foresee and too little prevent alas alas said she if there were but one hope for all my pains, or but one excuse for all my faultiness, but wretch that I am, my torment is beyond all succour, and my evil deserving doth exceed my evil fortune, for nothing else did my husband take this strange resolution to live so solitarily, for nothing else have the winds delivered this strange guest to my country, for nothing else have the destinies reserved my life to this time, but that only I, most wretched I, should become a plague to myself and a shame to womankind yet if my desire, how unjust soever it be, might take effect, though a thousand deaths followed it, and every death followed with a thousand shames, yet should not my sepulchre receive me without some contentment. But alas, though sure I am that so main is such as can answer my love, yet as sure I am that this disguising must needs come for some foretaken conceit, and then wretched Gynecia, where canst thou find any small ground-plot for hope to dwell upon? No, no, it is philoclea his heart is set upon. Is my daughter I have born to supplant me? but if it be so the life i have given thee ungrateful philoclea i will sooner with these hands bereave thee of than my birth shall glory she hath bereaved me of my desire in shame there is no comfort but to be beyond all bounds of shame having thus spoken the hapless gynecia wandering still further hears a lute and to it zelmane singing and coming to the little arbour whence proceeded this sorrowful music she found her love and sinking before her on the ground she cried o oh, zelmane have pity on me zelmane ran to her marvelling what sudden sickness possessed her and gynecia would fully have discovered her passion to her and her knowledge that she was no amazon but a man when they both heard footsteps and presently saw old basilius approach complaining of love very freshly and thus singing let not old age disgrace my high desire o heavenly shape in human soul contained old wood inflamed doth yield the bravest fire when younger doth in smoke his virtue spend now let white hairs which on my face do grow seem to your eyes of a disgraceful hue since whiteness doth present the sweetest show which makes all eyes to homage unto you.' Which being done, he looked very curiously upon himself, sometimes fetching a little skip, as if he had said his strength had not yet forsaken him. But Zalmayne, having in this time gotten some leisure to think for an answer, looking upon Gynecia as if she thought she did her some wrong, "'Madam,' said she, "'I am not acquainted with those words of disguising. Neither is it the profession of an absent, neither are you a party with whom it is to be used. If my service may please you, employ it, so long as you do me no wrong in misjudging of me.' alas zelmane said gynecia i perceive you know full little how piercing the eyes are of a true lover there is no one beam of those thoughts you have planted in me but is able to discern a greater cloud than you do go in seek not to conceal yourself further from me nor force not the passion of love into violent extremities Zalmane, now brought to an exigent was speedily rescued therefrom by Spacilius, who perceiving both his wife and his mistress together despatched his wife to the lodgeward and falling down on his knees proffered his love to Zelmane. "'as to a lady who only had power to stir up more flames in so aged a breast. "'Worthy prince,' said Zelmane, taking him up from his knees, "'both your manner and your words are so strange to me "'that I know not how to answer you. "'I disdain not to speak to you, mighty prince, "'but I disdain to speak of any matter which may bring my honour into question.' "'And there, with a brave counterfeited scorn, she departed from the king. "'And thus being rid of this loving but little loved company, "'she longed to meet with, and she sought, her friend Doris, "'that she might lay by the burden of sorrow.' and therefore went toward the other lodge, where, among certain beeches, she found Doris apparelled in flannel, with a goatskin cast upon him, and a garland of laurel mixed with cypress-leaves on his head, waiting on his master Demetis, who at that time was teaching him how with his sheep-hook to catch a wanton lamb, and how with the same to cast a little clod at any one that strayed out of company. And while Doris was practising, one might see Demetis holding his hands under his girdle behind him, nodding from the waist upwards, and swearing he never knew man go more awkwardly to work and that they might talk of book-learning what they would, but for his part he never saw more unfeety fellows than great clerks were. But Zelmane's coming saved Doris from further chiding, and so she, beginning to speak with him of the number of his master's sheep, and which province of Arcadia bare the finest wool, drew him on to follow her in such country discourses, till, being out of Demeter's hearing, with such vehemency of passion as though her heart would climb into her mouth, to take her tongue's office, she declared unto him upon what briars the roses of her affections grew, how time still seemed to forget her, bestowing no one hour of comfort upon her, she remaining still in one plight of ill-fortune, saving so much worse as continuance of evil doth in itself increase evil, and thus having poured into the friendly bosom of Doris, her many chances and her ill-success, Zermain so prayed her friend also to unburthen his griefs, and to bestow upon her a map of his little world, that she might judge whether he had been equally the spite and plaything of fortune. Thus besought, Doris entered to the description of his fortune after that by your means i was exalted to serve in yonder blessed lodge for a while i had in the furnace of my agonies this refreshing that because of the service i had done in killing of the bear it pleased the princess in whom indeed stateliness shines through courtesy to let fall some gracious look upon me sometimes to see my exercises sometimes to hear my songs for my part my heart would not suffer me to omit any occasion whereby i might make the incomparable pamela see how much extraordinary devotion i bear to her service and withal strave to appear more worthy in her sight that small desert joined to so great affection might prevail something in the wisest lady but too well alas i found that a shepherd's service was but considered of as from a shepherd and the acceptation limited to no further proportion than of a good servant and when my countenance had once given notice that there lay affection under it i saw straight majesty sitting in the throne of beauty draw forth such a sword of just disdain that i remained as a man thunder-stricken not daring no not able to behold that power now to make my estate known seemed again impossible by reason of the suspiciousness of demetis miso and my young mistress mopsa for demetis according to the constitution of a dull head thinks no better way to show himself wise than by suspecting everything in his way which suspicion miso for the hoggish shrewdness of her brain and mopsa for a very unlikely envy she hath stumbled upon against the princess's unspeakable beauty were very glad to execute so that i finding my service by this means lightly regarded my affection despised and myself unknown remain no full of desire than void of counsel how to come to my desire at last i lighted and resolved on this way which yet perchance you will think was a way rather to hide it i began to counterfeit the extremest love toward mopsa that might be and as for the love so lively it was indeed within me although to another subject that little i needed to counterfeit any notable demonstrations of it and so making a contrariety the place of my memory in her foulness i beheld pamela's fairness still looking on mopsa but thinking on pamela as if i saw my sun shine in a puddled water i cried out of nothing but mopsa to mopsa my attendance was directed to mopsa the best fruits i could gather were brought to mopsa it seemed still that mine eye conveyed my tongue so that mopsa was my saying mopsa was my singing mopsa that is only suitable in laying a foul complexion upon a filthy favour setting forth both in sluttishness she was the load-star of my life she the blessing of mine eyes she the overthrow of my desires and yet the recompense of my overthrow she the sweetness of my heart even sweetening the death which her sweetness drew upon me in sum whatsoever i thought of pamela that i said to mopsa whereby as i gat my master's good will who before spited me fearing lest i should win the princess's favour from him so did the same make the princess the better content to allow me her presence whether indeed it were that a certain spark of noble indignation did rise in her not to suffer such a baggage to win away anything of hers how meanly sever she reputed of it or rather as i think my words be so passionate and shooting so quite contrary from the marks of mopsa's worthiness she perceived well enough whither they were directed and therefore being so masked she was contented as a sport of wit to attend them whereupon one day determining to find some means to tell as of a third person the tale of mine own love and estate finding mopsa like a cuckoo by a nightingale, alone with Pamela, I came in unto them, and with a face I am sure full of cloudy fancies, took a harp and sung this song. Since so mine eyes are subject to your sight, that in your sight they fix it have my brain, since so my heart is filled with that light, that only light doth all my life maintain, since in sweet hue all good so richly reign, that where you are no wished good can want, since so your living image lives in me, that in myself yourself true love doth plant, how can you him, unworthy, then decree, in whose chief part your worths implanted be? The song being ended, I let fall my heart from me, and casting mine eye sometime on Mopsa, I fixed my look upon Pamela. O oh, Mopsa, Mopsa, said I, if my heart could be as manifest to you as it is uncomfortable to me, I doubt not the height of my thoughts should well countervail the lowness of my quality. But let not an excellent spirit do itself such wrong, as to think where it is placed, embraced, and loved there can be any unworthiness since the weakest mist is not easier driven away by the sun than that is chased away with so high thoughts i will not deny answered the gracious pamela but that the love you bear to mopsa hath brought you to the consideration of her virtues and that consideration may have made you the more virtuous and so the more worthy but even that then you must confess you have received of her and so are rather gratefully to thank her than to press any further till you bring something of your own whereby to claim it and truly doris i must in mopsa's behalf say thus much to you that if her beauties have so overtaken you it becomes a true lover to have your heart more set upon her good than your own and to bear a tenderer respect to her honour than your satisfaction now by my holiday madam said mopsa throwing a great number of sheep's eyes upon me you have even touched mine own mind to the quick forsooth and this policy of mine meeting with good hap i had one day a chance while railing a filthy fortune to picture my own misfortunes and the high estate of the princess while i had a shrewd care of the jealous mopsa for while pamela graciously hearkened i told my tale in this sort in the country of thessalia alas why name i that accursed country which brings forth nothing but matters for tragedies but name it i must in thessalia i say there was well may i say there was a prince no no prince whom bondage wholly possessed but yet accounted a prince i may musidorus oh musidorus musidorus but to what serve exclamations where there are no ears to receive the sound this musidorus being yet in the tenderest age his worthy father paid to nature with a violent death her last duties leaving his child to the faith of his friends and the proof of time death gave him not such pangs as the foresightful care he had of his silly successor and yet if in his foresight he could have seen so much happy was that good prince in his timely departure which barred him from the knowledge of his son's miseries which his knowledge could neither have prevented nor relieved the young Musidorus being thus, as for the first pledge of the destiny's good will, deprived of his principal stay, was yet for some years after, as if the stars would breed themselves for a greater mischief, lulled up in as much good luck as the heedful love of his doleful mother, and the flourishing estate of his country could breed unto him. But when the time now came that misery seemed to be ripe for him, because he had aged to no misery, I think there was a conspiracy, in all heavenly and earthly things, to frame fit occasions to lead him unto it his people to whom all foreign matters in foretime were odious began to wish in their beloved prince experience by travel his dear mother whose eyes were held open only with the joy of looking upon him did now dispense with the comfort of her widowed life desiring the same her subjects did for the increase of her son's worthiness and here too did musidora's own virtue see how virtue can be a minister to mischief sufficiently provoke him for indeed thus much must I say for him, although the likeness of our mishaps makes me presume to pattern myself unto him, that well-doing was at that time his scope, from which no faint pleasure could withhold him. But the present occasion which did knit all this together was his uncle, the king of Macedon, who, having lately before gotten such victories as were beyond expectation, did at this time send both for the prince his son, brought up together to avoid the wars with Musidorus, and for Musidorus himself, that his joy might be the more full having such partakers of it but alas to what a sea of miseries my plainful tongue doth lead me and thus out of breath rather with that i thought than that i said i stayed my speech till pamela showing by countenance that such was her pleasure i thus continued it these two young princes to satisfy the king took their way by sea towards thrace whither they would needs go with a navy to succour him he being at that time before byzantium with a mighty army besieging it where at that time his court was but when the conspired heavens had gotten this subject of their wrath upon so fit a place as the sea was they straight began to breathe out in boisterous winds some part of their malice against him so that with the loss of all his navy he only with the prince's cousin were cast aland and far off o cruel winds in your unconsiderate rages why either began you this fury or why did you not end it in his end but your cruelty was such as you would spare his life for many deathful torments to tell you what pitiful mishaps fell to the young prince of macedon his cousin I should too much fill your ears with strange horrors, neither will I stay upon those laboursome adventures, nor loathsome misadventures, to which, and through which, his fortune and courage conducted him. My speech hasteneth itself to come to the full point of Musidorus in fortunes, for as we find the most pestilent diseases to gather into themselves all the infirmities with which the body before was annoyed, so did his last misery embrace in extremity of itself all his former mischiefs. Arcadia. Arcadia was the place prepared to be the stage of his endless overthrow arcadia was alas well might i say it is the charmed circle where all his spirits for ever should be enchanted for here and nowhere else did his infected eyes make his mind know what power heavenly beauty had to throw it down to hellish agonies here here did he see the arcadian king's eldest daughter in whom he forthwith placed so all his hopes of joy and joyful parts of his heart that he left in himself nothing but a maze of longing and a dungeon of sorrow but alas what can saying make them believe whom seeing cannot persuade those pains must be felt before they can be understood no outward utterance can command a conceit such was as then the state of the king as it was no time by direct means to seek her and such was the state of his captive will as he could delay no time of seeking her in this entangled cause he clothed himself in a shepherd's reed that under the baseness of that form he might at least have free access to feed his eyes with that which should at length eat up his heart in which doing thus much without doubt he hath manifested that this estate is not always to be rejected since under that veil there may be hidden things to be esteemed. And if he might, with taking on a shepherd's look, cast up his eyes to the fairest princess nature in that time created, the like, nay, the same desire of mine, need no more to be disdained or held for disgraceful. But now, alas, mine eyes wax dim, my tongue begins to falter, and my heart to want force to help either, with the feeling remembrance I have in what heap of miseries the caitiff prince lay at this time buried. Pardon, therefore, most excellent princess, if I cut off the course of my dolorous tale, since... If I be understood, I have said enough for the defence of my baseness, and for that which after might befall to that pattern of ill-fortune, the matters are too monstrous for my capacity. His hateful destinies must best declare their own workmanship. Thus having delivered my tale in this perplex manner, to the end the princess might judge that he meant himself who spake so feelingly, her answer was both strange and, in some respect, comfortable. For would you think it? She hath heard heretofore of us both, by means of the valiant Prince Plangus, and particularly of our casting away which she following mine own style thus delicately brought forth you have told said she doris a pretty tale but you are much deceived in the latter end of it for the prince musidorus with his cousin pyrocles did both perish upon the coast of laconia as a noble gentleman called plangus who was well acquainted with the history did assure my father Oh, how that speech of hers did pour joys into my heart o oh, blessed name thought i of mine since thou hast been in that tongue and passed through those lips Though i can never hope to approach him as for Pyrocles, said i i will not deny it but that he is perished which i said lest sooner suspicion might arise of your being here than yourself would have it and yet affirm no lie unto her since i only said i would not deny it but for musidorus said i i perceive indeed you have either heard or read the story of that unhappy prince for this was the very objection which that peerless princess did make unto him when he sought to appear such as he was before her wisdom and thus as i have read it fair written in the certainty of my knowledge he might answer her that indeed the ship wherein he came, by a treason, was perished, and therefore that Plangus might easily be deceived, but that he himself was cast upon the coast of Laconia, where he was taken up by a couple of shepherds who lived in those days famous, for that both loving one fair maid, they yet remained constant friends, one of whose songs not long since was sung before you by the shepherd layman, and brought by them to a nobleman's house near Mantinea, whose son had a little before his marriage been taken prisoner, and by the help of this prince Musidorus, though naming himself by another name, was delivered. Now these circumlocutions I did use, because of the one side I knew the princess would know well the parties I meant, and of the other, if I should have named Strephon, Claes, Calendar, and Clytophon, perhaps it would have rubbed some conjecture into the heavy head of Mistress Mopsa. Therefore, most divine lady, Plankus might well err who knew not of any staking up. Lastly, for a certain demonstration, he presumed to show unto the princess a mark he had on his face, as I might, said I, show this of my neck to the rare Mopsa, and withal showed my neck to them both where as you know there is a red spot bearing figure as they tell me of a lion's paw that she may ascertain herself that i am Menalcas' brother and so did he beseeching her to send some one she might trust into Thessalia, secretly to be advertised whether the age the complexion and particularly that notable sign did not fully agree with their prince musidorus do you not know further said she with a settled countenance not accusing any kind of inward emotion of that story alas no said i even here the historiographer stopped saying the rest belong to astrology and therewith partly to bring mopsa again to the matter lest she should too much take heed to our discourses but principally if it were possible to gather some comfort out of her answers i kneeled down to the princess and humbly besought her to move mopsa in my behalf that she would unarm her noble heart of that steely resistance against the sweet blows of love that since all her parts were decked with some particular ornament her face with beauty her head with wisdom her eyes with majesty her countenance with gracefulness her lips with loveliness that she would make her heart the throne of pity being the most excellent raiment of the most excellent part but pamela without any show of favour or disdain either of heeding or neglecting what i had said turned her speech to mopsa with such a voice and action as showed she spake of a matter which did little concern her so that i was well nigh driven to submit to the tyranny of despair but as Doris was about to tell further dametas who came whistling and counting upon his fingers how many load of hay seventeen fat oxen eat up in a year Desired Zelmane from the king that she would come into the lodge where they stayed for her. Alas, said Doris, taking his leave, the sum is this, that you may well find you have beaten your sorrow against such a wall, which with the force of a rebound may well make your sorrow stronger. But Zelmane, turning her speech to Dametas, I shall grow, said she, skilful in country matters if I have often conference with your servant. In sooth, answered Dametas with a graceless scorn, the lad may prove well enough if he over soon think not too well of himself and will bear away that he heareth of his elders and therewith as they walked to the other lodge to make zelmane find she might have spent her time better with him he began with a wild method to run over all the art of husbandry especially employing his tongue about well dunging of a field while poor zelmane yielded her ears to those tedious strokes not warding them so much as with any one answer till they came to basilius and gynecia who attended for her in a coach to carry her abroad to see some sports prepared for her basilius and gynecia sitting in the one end placed her at the other with her left side to philoclea Zelmane was moved in her mind to have kissed their feet, for the favour of so blessed a seat, for the narrowness of the coach made them join from the foot to the shoulders, very close together. The true touch whereof, though it were barred by their envious apparel, yet, as a perfect magnet, though but in an ivory box, will through the box send forth his embracing virtue to a beloved needle. So this in neighbourhood made Zelmane's soul cleave unto her, both through the ivory case of her body, and the apparel which did overcloud it the sports having been witnessed, the awkward dametas who drove home half sleeping half musing about the mending of a wine-press overturned the coach on the great stub of a tree gynecia was only hurt having her shoulder put out of joint which though it were well set by one of the falconer's cunning yet gave her much pain and drave her to her bed misdoubting that this might give occasion to zelmane whom she misdoubted therefore she called philoclea to her and though it were late in the night commanded her in her ear to go to the other lodge and send miso to her with whom she would speak and she to lie with her sister Pamela. The meanwhile Gynetia kept Zelmane with her, because she would be sure she should be out of the lodge before she licensed Zalmane. Philoclea, not skilled in anything better than obedience, went quietly down, and the moon then full, not thinking scorn to be a torch-bearer to such beauty, guided her steps. And alas, sweet Philoclea, how hath my pen till now forgot thy passions, since to thy memory principally all this long matter is intended! Pardon the slackness to come to those woes which, having caused in others, thou didst feel in thyself the sweet-minded philoclea was in their degree of well-doing to whom the not knowing of evil serveth for a ground of virtue and hold their inward powers in better form with an unspotted simplicity than many who rather cunningly seek to know what goodness is than willingly take into themselves the following of it but as that sweet and simple breath of heavenly goodness is the easier to be altered because it hath not passed through the worldly wickedness nor feelingly found the evil that evil carries with it so now the lady philoclea whose eyes and senses had received nothing but according as the natural course of each thing required, whose tender youth had obediently lived under her parents' behests, without framing out of her own will the forechoosing of anything. When now she came to a point wherein her judgment was to be practised, in knowing faultiness by his first tokens, she was like a young fawn who, coming in the wind of the hunters, doth not know whether it be a thing or no to be eschewed, whereof at this time she began to get a costly experience, for after that Zelmane had a while lived in the lodge with her and that her only being a noble stranger had bred a kind of heedful attention her coming to that lonely place where she had nobody but her parents a willingness of conversation her wit and behaviour a liking and silent admiration at length the excellency of her natural gifts joined with the extreme show she made of most devout honouring philoclea carrying thus in one person the only two bands of good-will loveliness and lovingness brought forth in her heart a yielding to a most friendly affection which when it had gotten to full possession of the keys of her mind that it would receive no message from her senses without that affection worthy interpreter then straight grew an exceeding delight still to be with her with an unmeasurable liking of all that zelmane did matters being so turned in her that where at first liking her manners did breed goodwill, now good-will became the chief cause of liking her manners so that within a while zelmane was not prized for her demeanour but the demeanour was prized because it was zelmane's then followed that most natural effect of conforming herself to that which she did like and not only wishing to be herself such another in all things but to ground an imitation upon so much an esteemed authority. At last she fell in acquaintance with Love's Harbinger, wishing. First she would wish that they two might live all their lives together like two of Diana's nymphs, but that wish she thought not sufficient, because she knew there would be more nymphs besides them who also would have their part in Zomain. Then would she wish that she were her sister, that such a natural band might make her more special to her, but against that she considered that, though being her sister, if she happened to be married, she should be robbed of her, then grown bolder she would wish either herself or Zelmane a man that there might succeed a blessed marriage between them but when that wish had once displayed his ensign in her mind then followed whole squadrons of longings that so it might be with a main battle of mislikings and repinings against their creation that so it was not but as some diseases when they are easy to be cured they are hard to be known but when they grow easy to be known they are almost impossible to be cured so the sweet philoclea while she might prevent it she did not feel it now she felt it when it was past preventing like a river no ramp has been built against it till already it have overflowed for now indeed love pulled off his mask and showed his face unto her and told her plainly that she was his prisoner but the principal cause that invited her remembrance was a goodly white marble stone that should seem had been dedicated in ancient time to the sylvan gods which she finding there a few days before zelmane's coming had written these words upon it a testimony of her mind against the suspicion her captivity made her think she lived in the writing was this you living powers enclosed in stately shrine of growing trees you rural gods that wield your sceptres here if to your ears divine a voice may come which troubled soul doth yield this vow receive this vow o gods maintain my virgin life no spotted thought shall stain thou purest stone whose pureness doth present my purest mind whose temper hard doth show my tempered heart by thee my promise sent unto myself let after livers know no fancy mine nor others wrong suspect make me o virtuous shame thy laws neglect o chastity the chief of heavenly lights which makes us most immortal shape to wear hold thou my heart establish thou my sprites to only thee my constant course i bear till spotless soul unto thy bosom fly such life to lead such death i vow to die alas then o love why dost thou in thy beautiful sampler set such a work for my desire to take out which is as much impossible and yet alas why do i thus condemn my fortune before i hear what she can say for herself what do i silly wench know what love hath prepared for me do i not see my mother as well at least as furiously as myself love Elmaine? And should i be wiser than my mother either she sees a possibility in that which i think impossible or else impossible loves need not misbecome me and do i not see Zelmane, who doth not think a thought which is not first weighed by wisdom and virtue doth not she vouchsafe to love me with like ardour i see it her eyes depose it to be true what then and if she can love poor me shall i think scorn to love such a woman as zelmane away then all vain examinations of why and how thou lovest me most excellent zelmane and i love thee and with that embracing the ground whereon she lay she said to herself for even to herself she was ashamed to speak it out in words o oh, my zelmane govern and direct me for i am wholly given over unto thee and now demetis and miso who were round about to seek her having found her miso swearing that were it her daughter mopsa she would give her a lesson for walking so late philoclea went alone to her sister's pamela's chamber where she found her sitting in a chair lying backward with her head almost over the back of it and looking upon a wax candle which burnt before her in one hand holding a letter in the other her handkerchief which had lately drunk up the tears of her eyes leaving instead of them crimson circles like red flakes in the element when the weather is hottest which philoclea finding for her eyes had learned to know the badges of sorrow she earnestly entreated to know the cause thereof that either she might comfort or accompany her doleful humour but pamela rather seeming sorry that she had perceived so much than willing to open any further o oh, my pamela said philoclea who are to me a sister in nature a mother in counsel, a princess by the law of our country and which name methinks of all others the dearest a friend by my choice and your favour what means this banishing me from your counsels do you love your sorrow so well as to grudge me part of it or do you think i shall not love a sad pamela so well as a joyful or be my ears unworthy or my tongue suspected what is it, my sister, that you should conceal from your sister, yea, and servant, Philoclea? End of Book 2, Part 1